Well, uh, as the storm moved by, the wind direction kept changing. And the house was a concrete block house with a poured concrete tie beam around the top. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And we, we moved around in the house. As the wind direction changed, we kept, um, we kept on the windward wall as the, as the, how, as the, the wind clocked around. That was Flip Powell telling a story about how he survived Hurricane Andrew in his house while in the eye of the storm. This is episode number 70 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Today's episode is sponsored by the uh, WFS Member Society. The society provides exclusive discounts and access to innovative products and services from our member partner companies. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash members to check out some of the companies who are on board. Plus, you can support the show all at one convenient location. In today's episode, I talk with legendary Flip Pallet, who has been on the leading edge of fly fishing for many years now. We talk about some of the fishing shows he has hosted over the years, including the Walker K Chronicles, which lasted longer than Seinfeld. Flip tells us how a, uh, how he came to design one of the best skiffs on the water, gets into some bone fishing tips, and a new brand of rum that he's developing. Don't miss this as Flip tells us a story about Lefty Cray and how Lefty came to his savior after Hurricane Andrew hit. So, without further ado, here's Flip Pallet. How's it going, Flip? Perfect. Thanks for asking. Good. Good. Uh, great to have you on here. I I wanted to dig into some of the background. You're on kind of the other end of the country and I've talked to a you know a number of people out there, but um, you've obviously been around the fly fishing and just the fishing game for quite a while. I was hoping we can dig into some of the the stuff you've done, but uh, maybe you can just start us off and tell us how you got into f- fly fishing in the first place. Well, it's uh, <laughs> as you suggested a long story, but I was really really lucky just by by wonderful accident of birth. Uh, to have been born and, and, and able to grow up in South Florida, which was sort of, uh, which became the cradle of saltwater fly fishing uh, and saltwater light tackle fishing for that matter. Uh, and so because I was there and because I was young and because I was passionate about it and I had uh, friends uh, that were equally passionate and, uh, we had tons of leisure time and zero disposable income, uh, <laughs> growing up. So it was, uh, it was always a balancing act, uh, to get to the fish and, and, uh, be able to have enough money to date and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, everything that you do as you're at that point in your life. So, but because I was there and because it was happening, uh, I just sort of got sucked into the vacuum of, of the whole thing along with four of my friends and, uh, 
we literally fly fished day and night. Um, we, we, and we were fortunate because we had 50 or 60 species of fish that were legitimate fly rod targets. Uh, and they were in South Florida readily available to us. We were also 45 minutes away from the Bahamas. Hmm. So we, we had that at our disposal as well. Yeah. And we were young and bulletproof and tremendous uh, stamina and no brains and no money. The perfect <laughs> storm. So what year was that when you first, uh, in, in that period, when you first got into fly fishing? And that would have been in the early 60s. Well, actually, uh, let's see. Yeah, the early 60s. Okay. Uh, probably, probably started fly fishing in 61 or 62. And were there other people out there other than you guys fly fishing? There were. Uh, it, it was it was just becoming popular, and people from the trout world and the salmon world were were bringing the concept. They didn't have the tackle; it didn't exist. Hmm. Uh, they didn't have the flies; uh, they didn't exist as well. The biggest, baddest tackle available that we could um, tilt at saltwater species was the Orvis Battenkill bamboo hmm. fly rod. It was fiberglass and resin impregnated hmm. and split bamboo and would have been equivalent to what we think of as a nine weight yeah. today. Okay, And we were actually trying to catch giant tarpon, tarpon over 100 pounds, um, amberjack and sailfish and wahoo and kingfish. And I mean, we were trying to do everything with the batten kill. And uh, it wasn't until quite a while later that fiberglass came along. And that really changed the, the saltwater game. Uh, the introduction of fiberglass into fly rods was... I mean, it was huge. It mm. was a life-changing deal. What, what was uh, the? Why was that so big? I mean, just the increased casting efficiency, or what was the? Why was it such a big change for saltwater specifically? There were a lot of reasons. Um, not the first of which was um, fiberglass was a fraction of the weight of bamboo. Also. Uh, the modulus of fiberglass was in the hundreds of thousands. Fiberglass had a tremendous, much higher modulus than bamboo. And what uh, is that? Can, can, can you explain the modul modulus? Modulus is weight to stiffness. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, fiberglass had an ability to uh, rebound and return to its original shape when you bent it. Bamboo, after an extended fight with a big fish, took a set, hmm. um, and you had a permanent bend in your rod. You could work it out very, very carefully by bending it in the opposite direction, but it only made it bend worse the next time. Hmm. Uh, and that, of course, affected 
the casting characteristics of Murad. Uh, but that's what there was, and and because we did not know any better, um, it was great. Mm-hmm. We 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 loved it. Uh, the other thing that uh, that changed things tremendously uh, was uh, advances in fly lines. Fly lines in the early '60s had uh, designations as to size. Uh, but weight was pretty much not considered. Um, they were they were tapered with various different tapers, uh, much less sophisticated than the tapers used today. And there were no six weight, seven weight, eight weight. That didn't exist. There was uh, uh, alpha designations for fly lines, uh, G2AF. GAF, uh, G3AF, uh, and they meant something, but not enough that you could say, okay, I have this rod, which had no designation whatsoever. It was just a rod. And to try to find the line for it was a crap. And so I guess it was uh, in the later 60s, um, maybe even the early 70s, Myron Gregory uh, from out in California came up with the, the weight system for fly lines and corresponding fly rods. And it, that became a wonderful standard until, which lasted until, I don't know, five or six years ago when things got out of control again yeah. and as they are right now. Right. Um, yeah, please don't get me started on that. <laughs> no, no, we could, we've talked about that on this show already. It, it's uh, I do a lot. Of, I've covered a lot of the space stuff with steelhead and everything. And yeah, I mean that's a big, uh, a tough one for people getting into it because it, there's just so many different lines that people get confused. But no, we'll. Uh, I've got some other big topics I want to hit on here. But uh, yeah, just so just following up on that, you. So you basically are out there, one of the first people out there, you know, with the, the bamboo rods, and so you get the new rod and just makes everything a lot easier. You can. Land fish quicker, and then, and then, what's the next step going from there? So you have new lines, and then, I mean, where did all with your your life? I mean, you eventually got into making boats, and I mean, can you talk a little bit about how you went from that period you're talking about in the '70s sometime to having uh, your own TV show, The Walkers, K Chronicles, the uh, I guess the Saltwater Angler was maybe before that, but uh, and then you had your boat company. Can you just fill us in how all that came to be? Uh, yeah, I had, well, I probably, I had three or four over the course of, of my television lifetime, but I, I got started in it. Um, Stu Apt, uh, <clears throat> who's a notorious saltwater fisherman and who was a great teacher to me, uh, in the early years, uh, Stu invited me to, to do, uh, some ABC American sportsman shows with him mm. and some outdoor life shows, which were some of the early outdoor programs. So I did those shows with Stu and got a feel for what was involved and, and so forth, but didn't really strike out on my own until I was contacted by a producer 
who was interested in doing a saltwater show and had seen me on on one of the American sportsman shows and just thought he would contact me to see if I would be interested in hosting a show, which I, which I did. Hmm. And that was, uh, the saltwater angler. Okay. And we did, did that for, <clears throat> for a couple of years. Um, and then, um, I did another show, um, with, uh, trying to think who sponsored that but anyway it was it was mostly a show saltwater fishing in the keys and south florida and did that for a couple of years uh and then i uh, did a, a show for ford motor company for another couple of years and uh, i did the, the the walker show actually lasted 16 seasons wow. which uh, was a pretty good run. I mean, it was longer than longer than Seinfeld. No kidding. And yeah, and um, that show uh, really um, came out of the blue clear sky. My my wife, who was a flight attendant uh, for Pan Am, was flying down to South America, and a young man got on the plane in Miami and had a fly rod and I think he was going to Argentina. They developed a problem with the plane on the flight and they had to spend a couple of days somewhere along the I think maybe in, in Peru or somewhere. Anyway, they landed somewhere and spent a couple of days and, um, Diane invited this young man to have supper one night with the crew. And so they were having supper, and, and Diane says, well, I noticed that you had a fly rod. And he goes, yeah, I'm going down to Patagonia to fly fish. And at that time, I had done some television, but I was guiding full-time then, no. uh, guiding in saltwater, guiding in freshwater, guiding out in the Rockies in the summer, <laughs> guiding elk hunters. I mean, I was guiding full-time, and I was very busy. And... So she tells this guy that I'm a fly fishing guide in the Keys, and I don't think he paid much attention. And then um, a couple of months went by, and he saw me on a show somewhere and contacted me. And it turns out that his family owned the island of <laughs> Walker's Cay. Wow. And they, they actually hired me to come down there and assess the bone fishery to see if they had sufficient bone fish to start um, a bone fishing operation there on the island. And the family that owned the island, uh, the patriarch of the family had invented and held all the worldwide patents and licenses for the aerosol spray valve. Jeez. So he, he had a lot of horsepower. Yeah. And uh, just to shorten the story, I worked for them for a while on the island, doing ver set up a, a guiding operation on the island. Mm -hmm. And then uh, some friends and I started talking about maybe producing a show that didn't have the celebrity format that the other 
outdoor programs had yeah. that just had real people from the real activity. And we wound up approaching um, the owner of Walker's K to see if he wanted to become the financial partner of a fishing program that would be worldwide in scope. But the lyrical jumping off point for every episode would be the island of Walker's K. In that way, drawing uh, attention to the island and business to the island, hmm. which it really did. It did. And we had a, a very successful partnership and until his death. And then immediately after his death, three hurricanes destroyed the island. Uh, and all the infrastructure on the wow. island. Wow, was that was that in uh, was that Hurricane Andrew? No, uh, that was way. This was way after Andrew. This was uh, this was probably two thousand. Oh, okay. Two thousand. Yeah, Andrew was three or six or something like that. Okay. Andrew was ninety three. Ninety three. Okay. Or ninety. Yeah, ninety two or ninety three. Yeah. So uh, we were we were in Andrew. We lived we lived in Homestead for Andrew, and my mother and father were born in Homestead. And my grandfather came there in the last of the eighteen hundreds, and the, those people never left for hurricanes. And so that when they came around and told us that we had to evacuate, a mandatory evacuation, mm -hmm. we said yeah yeah we're we're getting our things we're you know, and but we didn't we no kidding. we stayed yeah you, you, were, you were there our, during uh night the hurricane andrew in 92 yeah um our our house blew down with us in it in, in about 45 minutes how did you i mean can you take us to that to that moment like how how what does that feel like as you're sitting there? I mean, do you, do you know, you probably don't know how big it's going to be. And then your house is torn down. I mean, can you take us to that? I mean, no, we had, we had no idea what was, what was coming. Uh, we had, we had absolutely no idea. We lived, we lived very near the Homestead air force base and the anemometer there blew away at 227 miles an hour. Jeez. So, they don't know how high the winds were in Andrew. Um, how did you survive? Well, uh, as the storm moved by, the wind direction kept changing. And the house was a concrete block house with a poured concrete tie beam around the top. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And we... We moved around in the house as the wind direction changed. We kept um, we kept on the windward yep. wall as the as the how as the the wind clocked around, and then uh, all at once we got about twenty five minutes of the eye of the storm, and then when the other side of the eye wall hit, it, it hit at full force, whatever full force was. But, um, in, in the end, um, we lost two automobiles. Uh, we lost my boat, my airboat, a lifetime of photography in the Everglades, computers, cameras, um, everything tackle. We lost 
everything we had when the next morning there was absolutely nothing left but us did, did people this, this, i mean you probably had people around you that were i mean people all lost their lives too and and, and I mean, well there was some of that many many people left okay um how many people do you think, as, how many people do you think i mean uh, held tight like that oh uh quite a few back back then there were plenty of people that still had traditional Florida values and, and roots. And those are the people that might've stayed. Uh, and we had friends who lost their lives staying. Yeah. Um, and we, we, after it was over, we couldn't leave. We had to make an insurance claim and then remain at the wreckage of the house. Because if you weren't there when the adjuster came, then they just put you at the back of the line and went on to somebody else. So we borrowed a, we borrowed a truck that had a little camper shell on the back, and we stayed right there at the house until the insurance company came. Yeah. And just an interesting aside, uh, are you familiar with the name Lefty Craig? Oh, oh yeah. Well, Lefty, uh, uh, an old, old beer friend, showed up two or three days after Andrew. It was impossible to get into Homestead. It was a miracle that he was able to get there. And he had a paper sack, $25,000 in it. No way. Yeah. And he said, Flip, because you and Diane are going to need this money. He said, Ev and I, this is money. We, we save it in a washing machine and we, you know, in the basement and we, we never use it. We will never need it. And he says, if you can pay it back, fine. If not, don't even worry about it. Just, uh, take this money and, wow. and, uh, that, use it to that have is, it. Yeah. That, that's, you know, I've, um, I've heard stories about lefty, you know, like some amazing stories, but that one just, that just gives you goosebumps because that, that's amazing. It does. I have thousands of, of lefty stories. He was, my dearest, closest friend for for many, many, many years. Wow. Um, probably many for many decades. But uh, we we were able to to um, get through Andrew and relocate elsewhere in the in the state. Hmm. Uh, the the homestead area was so drastically changed after that hurricane for many, many reasons. We just, we didn't feel like it was home any longer. And, mm -hmm. uh, Diane was able to get reassigned to a base in Orlando and mm -hmm. we built a home in the woods, uh, over East of Orlando on the coast. And here we've been since, uh, since Hurricane Andrew. Oh, no kidding. So, and you were yeah. there during, uh, the, you said the 2006 hurricanes as well. Yeah, those four that hit right here. Yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. We were here for that and those big fires in 98. And, wow. And uh, we've, we've had our share of, of fun. Yeah. Have you ever thought, uh, you know, after some of these big uh, natural disasters of just heading out, getting out of and getting away from the hurricane area? <laughs> uh yes uh i would if it was up to me i would spend uh the entire hurricane season in the rockies 
and uh, shut this place down. I unfortunately, my wife is so fully nested here uh, and involved in animal rehab and rescue and all sorts of things. Uh, she just yeah. she's not as willing as I am to to yeah. take off. But uh, I'm tired of seeing things revolve uh, counterclockwise. I could, I could walk away. Yeah. Are you seeing this is kind of on a random? Uh, I was just talking about this the other day. But are you seeing a you know changes with the climate change and stuff? Do you see more? Are we seeing more frequent hurricanes and things like that out there? No. No. no I'm not a big. I'm not a big believer in climate change. Yeah. So you, th- uh, so you feel that you've been there since. Oh, good. I was going to say you, you've been there since, I mean, a long time and, and you feel like it's pretty much, it's all just, uh, we've seen the same things, just hurricanes come and go. They come and go. It's, uh, I don't think we, I don't think we control that. Yeah. And I don't think that this is coming and becoming worse because we deserve it or whatever. <laughs> I just, I just think it's a it's a weather pattern. My God, we've never been able to predict weather or understand it for that no, matter. So, no. I don't believe uh, I didn't believe in global warming, and now that they've changed it to climate change, exactly. I don't believe in that. that's right. That's right. They, there's the uh, there's the safe words. Yeah, global warming is the word you don't use anymore. But climate change is is basically the same thing. But no, that's. That's the, you know that story is I mean that's unbelievable to hear, to hear your perspective. I would really love to to hear, hear more about all that. I, I think I want to tie into a little more back to maybe we'll take it back to some of the um, the fly fishing shows because I don't want to miss out on some of these uh, these questions I have for you. But you know when you think about the the Walker's K, which was the sixteen years running, which is a huge amount of timing. How would you describe that show to somebody who's never um, watched it before? It, it it wouldn't be easy, Dave. It's it's um, because to describe that show to people who watch the shows today uh, would be difficult because it was very different, and it was different because we wanted it to be different. But it was different because there was a different time. It was a different uh, circumstance with sponsors. Um, it was also a time when we shot the episodes on film and film had a look and mm-hmm. a feel and we recorded the sound through very sophisticated sound recording equipment. So mm-hmm. the sound of everything was richer and the look was richer and the show was lyrical instead of infomercialistic uh, because we we could get the money from sponsors to do it. And sponsors didn't have the power then to turn a show into an infomercial <laughs> because there weren't all these people hitting up the same sponsors for the limited amount of sponsorship dollars that were wow. available. So it was, uh, it was much easier for us to produce a, I don't want to say a better show, but yeah. a, a, a different, a different kind of show, a show with, with more production values, um, a show that could be more lyrical, a show that had uh, the ability to feature relationships uh, instead of talking products. Hmm. Uh, and, and so it would be hard. It would yeah. be hard. What do you mean by relationships? To describe it. Uh, 
human relationships. In oh. other words, on Walker's, um, there was always a guest, always. And the guest was always someone who who I had a, a relationship with. They, they weren't just um, random guests. Gotcha. It was always, there was always an alchemy, always a bond. Uh, and that resonated with people because anglers all have a fishing companion that they fish with. And the relationship between fishing buddies uh, is a relationship that can transcend friendship. Uh, it can give rise to exchanges that you might not have with a lawyer or a priest. <laughs> uh, it, um, it, uh, uh, those relationships have the um, tendency to to lead to other relationships and so forth. And so we always featured that very, very heavily, as heavily as anything else on the program, mm. uh, that uh, particular bond. And people recognized it and, uh, for the most part, would uh, cleave to that. And I think we we wrote the show... Uh, and narrated it um, with more emphasis than than shows today, uh, and the entire look and feel and sound of the show was different. The music was was not something that we bought from somewhere. My brother <laughs> and my cousin uh, wrote the music, and and cool. uh, so they wrote it. For the images, they, it wasn't something that got as close as it could. To, no, it was written for every every scene. So there were a lot of uh, aspects. Did you guys that, fish? That, um, so you covered. I mean, you basically covered most of the the U.S. Right? Did you guys get outside and, and go, or was it? And you covered trout. You could kind of cover all species, or was it m a majority of saltwater? We went absolutely all over the world. We we went to to some of the most remote places in the entire world. Oh, wow. Most of our episodes were were not in the states. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I caught a. I've watched a, a little bit uh, just <laughs> building up, but I guess the ones I didn't see the ones outside. So okay. And now is this? You can still watch these from right. Is there a is there a library of all these? Well, uh, it's a. It's a it's a sad story. Uh, the 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 episodes are all owned by ESPN, and they reside in a vault somewhere, moldering. Uh, ESPN is not willing to discuss selling them, leasing them, hmm. uh, forming a partnership to re-air them. They're not interested yeah. in discussing well, any, why, why anything. Would that be? Well, I think they have uh, concerns about legalities, and and those legalities are at this point steeped in uh, antiquity, and and they don't know they don't know if they have releases for all the people uh, oh, of the shows. Uh, gotcha. They don't know. I mean, they're just they're afraid. Yeah, they're they're afraid, and they're That's and, too bad. and it's all goats. So. Um, I have uh, digitized all of the shows, 
um, just finished doing that. Oh, so that's and, a, yeah. That's uh, a, I was watching from your website, I believe. Well, the, there, there, a lot of them are on uh, the Hell's Bay Boatworks website, but I'm going to put them all on a YouTube channel and let people see them. I'm not going to air them or uh, monetize them in any way. I'm just going to put them out there and people can look at them. That's great. That's great. I think that's the. Uh, that's awesome. So that's coming, and and uh, it's it's funny. The it did air for sixteen seasons, and the last season I'm trying to think, but I think it was. I think the last season was. Ninety or two thousand three or two thousand something something yeah. somewhere around in there. So. So it's been basically 20 years since the last show aired. Uh-huh. So there's a generation of fly fishermen who have evolved that never saw the show. No. Um, plus all the people that did see the show, but it had been 16 years since they saw the first show. Yeah. So, so that's uh, 36 years since the first show. So I, I think, um, when you could look at, to re-air, yeah, I was just going to say, you could look at my, I mean, I'm, I'm a uh, 43 and, uh, I hadn't seen any of the shows either. So I'll bet you there's a bunch of people out there that you would love to see them that have no idea. I think so. And it had been 20 some years since the hurricanes that are almost 20 years since the hurricanes that destroyed, uh, walkers, and I had not been back to the island since the hurricanes, since actually before before the hurricanes. Hmm. So um, I always wanted to go back and film it, but <clears throat> I was reluctant to do that because the island was destroyed. There was nothing there. Um, I, I just, I thought that it would be, uh, sad uh, to yeah. revisit the bones of a lion. And so about, well, in the summer, this past summer, um, someone bought walkers with a, with a plan to revitalize it and bring it back to what it was only better. Mm-hmm. And, and by better, I don't mean bigger and, and more elaborate. I just mean what it was, done better and and uh an interesting guy uh and he contacted me and and uh i decided to to do a go over and do a film but to take my little skiff uh a little uh 17 18 foot skiff and run it across the gulf stream from florida uh to walkers and film in all the old places where we filmed the Walker's K Chronicles, uh, around Walker's K for bonefish and snapper and sharks and, uh, barracudas and bottom fish grouper and snapper and things. So, uh, I got hold of an old dear friend who filmed a lot of the Walker shows over there with me. And, um, we did, we, we went back to Walker's and we filmed, running the little boat across the Gulf stream and, hmm. and, uh, 
seeing walkers again for the first time in 20 years. And, and then we did, we, we revisited all the old episodes of the Chronicles and we pulled footage out of he and I, uh, years, decades ago when we were young and pretty. <laughs> and, uh, we, refilmed uh all that same fishing uh wow. in all those same places and in the film we cut back and forth oh cool uh cool to the old to the old uh faded footage uh and then back to the new uh anyway it's it huh. turned out to be uh, a really really interesting film and i'm in the process of writing it Right now, writing the the voiceover. Right now. Oh, cool, cool. How? Yeah. Wh- what did that? I mean, how did that feel going back to the, that old area, being gone so long? And then, what, what, <laughs> if, what, what was that like? You're going to have to watch the show. Oh, yeah. All right. Is it going to be? Is it going to be? Um, how are you going to release it? Or where, where is it going to be? Well, I'm. I'm uh, we were going to do a fly fishing film tour. Mm-hmm version of it but uh it was the rules were too restrictive for what we mm-hmm. want to portray and the thing so we've we've backed out of that so i think we're going to do um a probably a, an hour-long version um and we'll probably show it on networks as a special but we're doing shorter versions, social media versions uh, for ourselves and YouTube channel and, and for, uh, we had some sponsors that helped us. Uh, and so we're going to do social media versions of it for them, sure. for their sites. Yep. So it'll be uh, pieces of it and all of it will be all over the place. You'll yep. probably be, oh, be, be tired of it. Yeah. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. The PDX Auto Mart specializes in trucks and SUVs to meet your expectations and high demands both on and off-road, assuring you are 100% satisfied is their number one priority. If you're in the Portland area, stop on by and meet the guys down at the Auto Mart. And if you're, uh, if you're not in the Portland area, they actually can ship the vehicles out to your location around the country. And I made a special connection with the guys recently while looking over a truck purchase. And although I was a bit skeptical at first based on the typical kind of used car salesman stuff, I can tell you these guys are next level service and they don't let you go home unsatisfied. Even when things pop up, they're definitely there to take care of you, which is very important in, you know, when buying a used car. So um, here's to uh, Mehdi, Jeff, Jeremy, and all the, the bunch down there. Cheers to you guys. Uh, head over to pdxautomart.com. That's pdxautomart.com and take a look at their selection. Tell them, uh, tell them I sent you from the Wet Fly Swing podcast and they'll make sure to take care of you in an extra special way. Today's uh, show is also brought to you by the Wet Fly Swing Member Society. By joining the group, you get access to over 30 fly fishing and tying companies along with exclusive discounts and services um, on products and services, which is a really cool deal. Lots of great companies doing good stuff. And we're always adding new companies and products to the mix. So head over to wetflyswing.com slash members. That's M-E-M-B-E-R-S 
to see our partner companies and some of the innovative products they have going on over there. Okay, back to the show. The Helms Bay Boats uh, was a design that was needed um, for really, really serious, technical, shallow water fishing. There was absolutely nothing that existed to fill that gap. And um, we were doing it at the time with aluminum John boats, which were very hard riding. Uh, They were not dry when you got into weather. And worst of all, they were extremely noisy when you were trying to sneak up on, on fish in shallow water. So we had a John boat that was our favorite um, in terms of its dimensions. And so we decided to build a skiff that would be as light as a John boat with similar dimensions, but which had uh, hull characteristics that would cause the boat to be dry when you were running in in seas and would... um, cause it to be very, very quiet, totally silent uh, when you were pulling it. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> to achieve the, the extreme shallow draft, the boat had to be either small and light or extremely long and wide to displace enough water to float shallow. Mm-hmm. We didn't want that because it was harder to pull. So we went with the small, uh, extremely light concept, which was totally foreign to anything that existed at the time. And so it wasn't immediately well-received, but as a few of them trickled out there and people began to recognize what they could accomplish with these skiffs, uh, all at once uh, there was a groundswell And with that recognition came uh, more orders for boats than we could (laughs) say grace over. (laughs) And it gave, uh, of course, to a, to a successful business. Yeah. And, and those, um, and what year was that when you first uh, sold your first boat? It was in the uh, last of the nineties, I would say, uh, Probably uh, not, uh, maybe ninety six to ninety eight somewhere in there. Okay, so you had so you had the um, uh, Walker's K Chronicles going for quite a number of years before you even got your first boat out on the market. Were you yeah. using, using uh, what what boats were you using first? So you're using aluminum boats with part of that show. We were using aluminum boats, and uh, there were a couple of fiberglass hulls that had originally been designed for other things other than fishing, but they were, if we could just get the hulls and then build them up ourselves, uh, they were suitable to the kind of fishing that we were doing. And then uh, once we started doing that, uh, another manufacturer uh, came along, a fellow who built ski boats. Uh, His name was Bob Hughes, really, really nice guy. And he became interested in building a technical polling skiff. Uh, and he did with input from some of the prominent light tackle anglers in South Florida and built a wonderful skiff. And it was, in fact, the first 
production skiff um, that was really of high quality and, and good design. And it was, it was very, very successful. He sold a lot of them and they were really, really good, tough boats. They were heavy mm. uh, and they didn't go really, really shallow, but they were great boats and they were sort of the, the cutting edge uh, for many years um, before, before we came along with, uh, with mm-hmm. the little skiff that we called a uh, whip ray. Mm. And are there other, are there other companies out there doing a similar product as your boats now? Yeah, it's like anything else. If yeah. you, if you invent something that's really, really good and well accepted, there'll be people who shamelessly <laughs> knock it. Yeah. And, and they have, I mean, shamelessly, I mean, copy every facet of the boat. Um, yeah. I mean, make the, make claims that are right. utterly ridiculous possible. And, yeah. and, uh, so, uh, but I, I guess that's part of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, uh, <clears throat> fly reels and fly lines oh, and yeah. lures and everything. I mean, go to, go to Korea and go to China and yeah. knock it off. I mean, not knock it off, copy it, copy it yeah. and then, and, and then bring it back into the States and sell it and sell it as your own. And it's, it's horrible. I've seen yeah. it. The, the most, the most shamelessly I've seen it is with coolers. Oh yeah. Uh, the people who have knocked off Yeti. Yep. Um, there's a bunch of them. Well, it, it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know how they hold their heads up. Yeah. Well, I guess they hold their heads up because they're making money. Yeah. Do you think it's changed if you look at today versus, say, in the 60s with, uh, you know, products coming out? Or do you think we we saw the same thing back then? Well, no. I mean, things were made in America then. And and, uh, there were were, uh, business codes. uh, Oh, sure. Of codes of conduct and and people were prouder than to just copy things instead they invented better things and america has always done that until you know this era yeah when we don't do that anymore we just copy stuff that uh that somebody else worked really really hard to invent and not only invent but manufacture and bring to market right. and create, <clears throat> create the market. Huh. And then people come along and, and, and copy it. I mean, to the centimeter copy it. No kidding. And no, there should be laws that prevent that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. At least, at least laws that prevent the importation of copies of American products because we can't compete labor wise here. No. No. So anyway, that's no. That's, no, we were uh, talking. It's an interesting conversation. I was just, um, oh, we had, a, had an episode with uh, the Drake. Um, they have a podcast with the Drake cast, and uh, the producer of that show was mentioning how he was interviewing um, some of the folks from Sims, and he was kind of calling them out a little bit because they talked about how you know they have a, a set of their waiters that are made in the USA. You know, but for the most part, most of Sims waiters are made outside, you know, they're outside of this country. 
And it was kind of one of those things where he was calling about a little bit like, well, you're not really all, and not everything's made in the USA. So it's, it just seems so hard. Even the biggest, maybe even the best companies, right, are, are still going overseas. So it's just a, it's like a tough place we're in. I think everybody feels like they have to go over there, right? Well, I have no problem with people doing that. I, I think it makes sense to do that in some cases. And, and building things offshore have some advantages uh, to, to Americans. Yeah. Uh, so I have no trouble with that concept. What I have trouble with is people going offshore and cheaply copying, copying. things. Yeah, I, I, that's what I have a problem yep. with. Uh, that's right. Offshore is, you know, the, the fact that we manufacture things offshore is something we brought on ourselves yep. through our own labor practices. Uh, we we chased the business offshore. So yeah. we have no one to thank for that but ourselves and and. That's evolution, uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Okay, well, let's take it back to, um, you know, thinking a little bit more, more on fly fishing. What do you think, you know, I mean, you fish for pretty much, it seems like, about every species. Is there, um, you know, this is probably a hard one for you, but if you had to pick one, you know, you could only fish fly fish for one uh, saltwater species out there, what, what would you What would you say? Why did I know you were going to ask me did this you know question? That? Uh, did, do you know, uh, do you know Jim Teamy? <laughs> Uh, sure. Yeah, Jim TD. Yeah, he's a guy out in our area, and I, I asked him the same question. So I've, I've, I've <laughs> I haven't asked that to many people, but I'm, I'm curious. Do you have a good answer for it? Is that? No, I know. I've known Jim Tini for centuries. He's a he's a cool guy. Uh, I I, uh, I love to fish for bonefish, um, and I loved to fish in Florida for bonefish. It was the finest bonefish destination in the world. Uh, they're virtually gone from Florida uh, now, and but the the Bahamas is pretty close uh, geographically and easy to get there, and they have uh, a good number of bonefish and a good number of places to fish for them, and so I really, really, really enjoy fishing for bonefish. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what? Uh, the, oh, go ahead. I I think the the requirements fishing for bonefish are challenging um, and, you know, cause us to be better and, and cause us to fish better and cast better and, and uh, uh, drive our lures better. And, and I think it's just a, it's a great challenging little fish. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking, you mentioned without getting deep into the the uh, all the problems and the environmental conservation, all that stuff. Can you give us a kind of a couple minute summary of of what happened to all the the you know the bonefish populations in the Florida area? Uh, I I just think it could all be summed up by saying that we we did a very very poor job of taking care of the fish's house. Um, the the lack of water quality uh, and all that we've allowed to happen uh, that caused it to be as poor as it is have just uh, impacted the ecosystem just to, to the point where I think the bonefish just decided, you know what, we can paddle out of here. We don't have to live here. And they did. Yeah. And, you can't imagine in your wildest dreams what this was like when I was a young man. Mm. Um, and, um, 
how sterling the bone fishery was in in South Florida and the Keys. And it's to the point now where if, if you're able to catch one in a day, it's a it's a good day. No kidding. Um, if you're able to see one or two in a day, it's a good day. Uh, so it's really, really sad. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how poor the water, water quality around the whole state is. But believe me, it's a subject that once you get me started on, Okay. Uh, that'll be the end of the podcast. All right. Well, let's 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 hold it off there. That's that's a good. Well, uh, y'all have to follow up <laughs> with you. Pro- provide some links to some of the the stuff that's going on out there because I, I do have some other questions I wanted to touch on. And um, you know, one of them just thinking about how you you know got to where you are bringing it back. I mean, can you you know you talked a lot of the history back to the early sixties. You know, you getting into uh, the fishing, but can you give us a, like a brief history of like the saltwater fly fishing? Did like, when did it start in, in that area or just generally? And, and I mean, you're pretty close to, or were people fishing for, for many years before that? No, I think, I think you could probably time it to the end of the second world war. Okay. Um, people, you know, men, uh, returning from the, from the, from the war. Uh, and it was a time when, uh, men, um, for the first time in the history of the country, were able to get mortgages, home mortgages, and automobile loans, uh, and jobs. Um, and uh, people had disposable income and some leisure time, principally weekends, but they had that. And there was a small cadre of uh, outdoor writers uh, after the war, like uh, Joe Brooks, Joe Brooks yeah. Uh, who, yeah, who began to popularize fly fishing in both fresh and saltwater. Uh, Joe, Joe was um, a huge force uh, during that time um, in terms of, exposing fly fishing to this mass of people who are coming back and, and looking for things to do in the outdoors because the outdoors then was what we had. Uh, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, uh, Twitter and we didn't have Facebook. And we, I mean, we didn't, we, that's what we had. People hunted and fished, uh, organized sports weren't even that big then. Um, so a professional organized sports, so, uh, hunting and fishing and fly fishing, uh, Joe had this unique ability to make it seem like the greatest adventure in the world. Um, certainly he made me feel that way. Hmm. And, and so, uh, all this was happening around the country, but the saltwater part of it was, pretty much directed uh, at the East Coast of the United States and more than any place else, South Florida, because of the number of species that were available. In the Northeast, they, they, they did fly fish for saltwater fish, but the number of species that they fished for in the salt was, you know, four or five or six fish. Gotcha. Um, there were 50 in Florida that wow. you could, that were readily available. Uh, you could wade 
and catch all kinds of fish uh, or drive along canals, saltwater canals. And, and it was, it was really, really, really an amazing place. Hmm. When did you start seeing, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, was it just a slow transition to not being amazing as far as fish populations? No, it was insidious. Uh, it wasn't as though a switch was thrown. Um, the the process, and I think because Florida sits on an aquifer, which is like a giant sponge, I think, you know, maybe the first 50 years of things that we did wrong were were absorbed by nature yeah. uh, or nature was able to, to, I mean, her immune system wasn't overwhelmed, but I think it, it's, I know it's been cumulative and like any immune system, uh, there comes a point where uh, it becomes more difficult to, to fight the invasion of pollutants and chemicals and herbicides and pesticides and, agro runoff and and all of the problems that that have been introduced to the natural world in south florida so it wasn't something that you saw coming down the tracks um and prepared for it just uh crept up on on all of us Mm -hmm. and suddenly we realized that we had done a terrible job Hmm. And we're struggling now to to find a way, if indeed there is a way. Um, I, I, I don't know that there is. I, I'm hopeful. And I'm definitely in the fight. Mm-hmm. But some days uh, yep. I look at I look at the the politics and I look at the money mm. and I look at the the overwhelming tourism and influx of people into Florida and wonder if indeed um, anything can be saved. I'm I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Maybe we can take it back real quick to, again, thinking back, you know, you got into some of these big shows and I mean, you were doing a lot of stuff and I'm thinking about when you first mentioned getting started, was there a time when you kind of had a, some sort of a a big break in your life or some transitional point that really elevated you to that, that next stage where you were kind of doing the TV and stuff or did that kind of slowly evolve? I I think there was, and I think it was the day that I realized that I wasn't able to guide and uh, do television uh, at the same time or do, or do both continue to do both. I, I couldn't book, uh, and, and bookings as a guide were very often a year out. Hmm. And so you'd book and, and you were trying to book prime fishing time. Pete, that's what people wanted to buy time and pride time tides, prime moon phases, uh, yeah. And you'd get there and you didn't have those times to film. Uh, or you needed to go to uh, Nicaragua and film small tarpon or something there. But you couldn't because you had days booked a year in advance. To And so when I decided to, to give up guiding, 
and devote myself uh, full time to um, television and consulting. Uh, and then I did some writing as well. And, and mm-hmm. so anyway, the, the day that I made the decision that I really couldn't be a guide any gotcha. longer, I think was, that was the pivotal yep. day. That, that, and then the consulting. So you went in and what type of consulting were you doing back then? Um, I think some of the first consulting that I did was for rod manu- manufacturers okay. and then real real manufacturers and uh, mm-hmm. clothing manufacturers and footwear mm-hmm. and uh, it it, uh, it just expanded mm-hmm. uh, to the to the outdoor industry um, yep. kind of across across the outdoor industry and and I continue to do those things today. Yeah, that's right because you're not only we're not going to have time to get into all the stuff you do, but not only do you get into fly fishing, but you're a big, uh, I think, turkey hunter and, and just, just normal, just gear fishing. You kind of do it all. Do you think, I mean, when you think of, uh, I guess, turkey hunting, is that something, you know, you've got uh, as much passion as, as fishing? Much more. Um, <clears throat> my my passion is, is hunting. And... Um, mostly uh traditional archery and uh but i i hunt upland birds i hunt turkeys i hunt ducks deer hogs turkeys um i i hunt every single day that i can and the fishing is something that i love but it's my vocation Hmm. Uh, my avo my avocation is somewhere in the woods always there you go and has that has that always been the way for you? Always. Hmm. Yep. Okay. What um, you we mentioned? Uh, you talked about some of the biggest names in you know in fly fishing: Lefty Cray, Joe Brooks, uh, just fishing in you know in the world. Are there, is there any other um, mentors you've had over the years that have influenced you know helped you to get to where you are? Yeah, I, I think uh, in fishing, uh, Lefty. Uh, you know, the word mentor gets kicked around today so often yeah. and so uh, inappropriately used, uh, you know, because somebody taught you something or showed you something or uh, you had a nice lunch with them. That doesn't make them your mentor. No. Uh, <laughs> mentoring takes tremendous time. and. Uh, and a long investment of of many things on the part of the mentor, and so uh, I'm I'm fortunate in my life that I've had in fishing uh, probably two mentors, true mentors, and uh, in hunting another one. So in my life, three three people that I could call mentors, and my life is uh, seventy six years long mm-hmm. so it you know it wasn't uh uh five minutes that these people became my mentor so oh. lefty of course uh who lefty i met in 63 or 64 and uh he lived just right down the street from me and so i was constantly at his house and driving him nuts from the time i was a teenager till till his death earlier this year and um uh 
he was uh, he was a role model and a spirit guide and a friend and a brother. And we did, I mean, we we fished all over the world together, all over this country together. Uh, we talked on the phone two or three times a week. And then later in his life, when he learned texting, he went nuts with texting, and, and we text we texted all the time. And I still text him uh, two or three times a week. I I'm not ready to quit that. Yet. Yeah. So yeah. Lefty was was huge in my life, and uh, he was the guy that I called when I was happy. And he's the guy I called when I had problems or when I had ethical decisions to make. Um, Lefty was always there. And uh, another person who who um, was very, very influential and helpful in my life was uh, Stu Apt. Uh, and very unselfish um, in, in his help and guidance. And, and so... Lefty and Stu, mm-hmm. tremendous factors in, in my life. And I'm not talking about just helping me get from here to there or that right. sort of thing. I mean, it was, they were, they were truly role models yeah. and idols. And I never, I never idolized professional athletes or politicians or movie actors or anything like that it was always uh people who were in the in the natural world and those were the two people who surfaced uh and whose paths um Hmm. became my own gotcha and you also uh you kind of you mentioned uh, joe brooks i think watching the shows and stuff did your path uh, did you guys cross paths back in the i can't remember even what era he was really um, doing his stuff, but did you, did you have a connection there at all? Yeah. Uh, I knew Joe and, and I loved to read his, uh, he was a tremendous author and, uh, he did some of the early outdoor television. Uh, and, and Joe was lefty's mentor. Oh, uh, Joe started lefty in fly fishing and Joe truly was a mentor and an idol of lefty's. Huh. And so Joe was removed from me by a generation, but we still, uh, Joe was the director of a, of a tournament in South Florida that I was very active in and, um, and, uh, our paths crossed, uh, many times because of lefty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but, but Joe was much more important to lefty's life. Uh, than he ever was to mine. Sure. Um, and, and that was just a generational thing. Gotcha. Okay. But, but, uh, Stu, uh, was more, uh, Stu and Lefty were more contemporaries and, uh, a little older, but, but still contemporaries. And, uh, and I was just, the timing of my life has been so perfect. I mean, people like Dave Whitlock, mm-hmm. um, you know, have become tremendous friends, uh, through my life. And, and Jim Teeny, who you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, Jim and I have, we've elk hunted together and we've fished together and we've done business together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can say that about 
many, many, many of the people who were prominent in the in the uh, in the fly fishing world today. Uh, are you familiar with Chico Fernandez at all? I, I, yeah, I know the name. I haven't. Yeah, I, I, I'm not totally familiar though. Uh, Chico and I, uh, I met him in 1959, right when he came from Cuba, and and uh, he and I grew up together. Went to to high school and college and and uh, i mean we've we've been friends for 60 years mm-hmm. and so uh just just good timing i just uh been lucky mm-hmm. and no it sounds like yeah you've been around obviously the the most influential people in the world there's no question about that but you know as you sit there now i mean it sounds like you still have some some good stuff coming up you know you're talking about a, a new movie and things like that do you have you know, when you, I guess you look back on your life, um, you know, in your times, I guess you know, there's a couple ways to ask this question. One would be, you know, when we're all gone in, in 50 years or so, um, you know, is there something you'd really want to be remembered for if you think about, you know, what you've done out there in the, in the fishing world? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I've never been a, a seeker of uh, world records or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, there's nothing I, there's nothing I can think of. I, yeah. I, uh, you know, you know, uh, lefty helped me so much and in all the years never asked me for a thing. I mean, never asked, never asked for anything. He, he always hoped that I would do the same thing that he did, you know, uh, give other folks a hand and, and, uh, yeah. help, help, uh, pass along uh whatever whatever knowledge uh, you know we've been able to bring to the sport and uh, the sum total of a lot of experience you know that's just and the, the just by the the grace of timing the things that i've experienced nobody else will ever be able to experience because those things don't exist right. anymore right um you know, they, there, no one will be able to pioneer the things that I've been fortunate to pioneer because it's been done. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be other things, uh, but those things, you know, we were there for, we were there for that. And, and we did that and we made those contributions. And, and so I think those ultimately will be the things if I'm remembered at all, uh, it'll probably be for, uh, a compilation of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and I was just thinking Lefty, like we've talked here. I mean, I think one thing you know he's definitely remembered for already. I know I I never met him, but uh, just heard stories and stuff. But you know, just how um, yeah, just the story you told and how he was always there for not only his friends but for everybody. You know that that was yeah. an amazing thing. Like yeah. just people he didn't even never knew or anything. It's and so that's I mean something <laughs> that, amazing. Yeah, it's it's it is amazing. It's totally amazing. I've I've heard hundreds literally hundreds of people who referred to him as their mentor which is ridiculous yeah but but they have that feeling legitimately i mean they feel that yeah and he was able to reach people in that way which is remarkable mhm it is well flip we're uh, we're about there um do you have a couple minutes for a, like a quick little rapid fire round 
Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, I always uh, like to ask just kind of getting, and we're talking a little bit about bonefish here. Um, you know, when you think of fly fishing, um, do you have a couple of maybe a couple of your, your go-to flies or, a, you know, a, a couple of patterns you like to use when you're out there fishing for them? Sure. Um, I think the, the, you know, uh, bonefish patterns like, like steelhead patterns and, and, um, attractor patterns in Western streams go through, um, eras of popularity and then they fade away and sometimes they come back, but they come and they go. And today I think the, the bonefish pattern that is most popular as, as I see it, and I travel around the bonefish world a bunch, it's a, it's a fly called the spawning shrimp. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are a number of different uh, renditions of the spawning shrimp, but the basic pattern remains pretty much the same and incredibly effective uh, on bonefish these days. Okay. And uh, do you have a, when you think of bone fishing or maybe just fly fishing in general, do you have a, a tip or two that you think would uh, help somebody that's maybe going to be heading out on their first trip out there for bonefish sometime? Uh, yes. Um, instead of investing, uh, a lot of money in a rod and a reel, invest that money in lessons Mm -hmm. so that you know how to, how to use both, uh, and spend less money on the rod and more money on instruction so that when you, when you get to the point where you're a cast away, Yep. from whatever fish it is you're fishing for, you're able to make that cast mm-hmm. um, and not stand there with the prettiest $900 rod <laughs> in the world. Uh, and you can't, you can't make the cast. That's a good, that's a good one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what about uh, somebody new? Um, you know, I talk to occasionally, we have people on here that are more, you know, newer than you've been doing a long time, but new guys and things like that. Do you have a tip for somebody that's kind of new to fly fishing, kind of the industry or whatever, and they want to get more into it, maybe, maybe become a guide or, you know, over your years of being successful, what, what would you tell somebody new to it? Well, I, 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 I get a lot of, like through social media, uh, very, very often, uh, get notes from people who want to become guides. And it's, it's hard for me to, to give that kind of advice today. You know, I'm, I, yeah. I'm pessimistic about it. I, I think, uh, you know, there, there are places and pockets where, being a guide can, can be wonderful, but, um, livelihood as, as a guide these days, um, it's tough. It's a tough, it's a tough path. Uh, not that it can't be done, but it's, it's a tough path and it's a very physical path, more physical than it ever was. Hmm. And so there's a time limit on, on, that kind of physical job. And at the same time, there's no 401k. There's no paid vacation. Uh, there's no medical coverage. Uh, and so, uh, these are all things that, uh, you have to 
factor into the romance of being a guide, which is, which is powerful. Hmm. Uh, but all these other things are realistic. And so you have to factor them into decisions about becoming a guide these days. Um, when I did it, it was, it was much easier. And, yeah. um, so it, it's, it's a different world there and people coming into the sport. Um, I think when I came into fly fishing, it was, I guess I saw it as uh, a way to challenge myself to fish better and to fish harder. Hmm. Today, it's it's a little different. People coming into the sport, well, well, they're they're not really coming into a sport. They're coming into a lifestyle. Right. Yep. Uh, there's there's proper clothing. <laughs> um, there's proper footwear. Yeah, there's proper skiffs, there's proper drift boats, there's proper rods and reels and lines, and God forbid you don't use the right uh, line. Um, right. It, it's it's a, a lifestyle now, and you have to have uh, a Yeti cup when you're sitting in the front of the boat, and and I mean, it's just totally, totally, totally different deal today. Hmm. The good the good part of it is that the learning curve that I had to go through to become um, the fly fisher that I am to, to whatever degree that is, was a long learning curve uh, because there were no cassettes or discs or DVDs or fly fishing schools or seminars or blogs or right. any of that. Uh, it didn't exist. If you wanted to learn how to throw a tight loop, you better get out in the front yard and, teach yourself how to do it and you better have the epiphany quickly or you were going to waste lots and lots and lots of days uh, in frustration on the water so none of that is necessary today you can um, you can learn anything you want to learn off your iphone right right i think so yeah, that is true. The, the YouTube uh, generation is is kind of crazy. I think you still do have to, you know, people that don't realize it, they you know still need to get out and do a lot of practicing and get on the water even after watching those videos. Um, but um, but I hear you. I know you feel like I um, actually I've, I, we've talked about that before. You know, the fact that people watch all these YouTube videos and they're like, oh my gosh, what what line should I get? This and that, and they're totally freaking out. And the first thing they should do is just stop watching videos and get on the water and start fishing and start casting like, like you're saying. And, um, that's, that's a great point. So, um, I, I was going to note too, flip, uh, we're about out of here, but, um, uh, all the show notes and links and things like that will be at uh, wetflyswing.com slash flip. I'll have a, a link to some information, including a, a show I did with, uh, Davey, uh, Watton in episode 35, he um, he talked a little bit about this um, when he was talking about Dave Whitlock and how because Davey's been guiding for I think he still guides like 200 days a year and he's he's uh, I think he's not too far away from your age um, but he asked Dave Whitlock he was like so what's what's going on with this we're we, we're these you know we've done all this stuff and we're still working out here what what, what happened you know so kind of kind of jokingly I think Dave Dave basically said hey are you enjoying what you're doing. You know, and he made that point like, well, you are doing something that's pretty amazing. So, um, so, but I hear you what you're saying too. 
Yeah, Davey Watton is a monster. He's uh, he's one of the people that I really, really look up to, uh, and I consider Davey one of the one of the most talented uh, sweetwater fishermen that I've ever known in my life, mm-hmm. uh, and a and a wonderful guy to boot. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right, Flip. Well, I'll, I'll let you get out here. Do you have um, in the next six to twelve months um, anything we can expect? Are we looking for this uh, this new movie coming out? Yeah, it'll be here. Um, I, I'd say that it should probably be um, completed in 30 days or 30 or 60 days or so, uh, no later than that. And uh, I've got a, a a rum project that I'm involved with some friends in, and, and so we're hoping to be out with that uh, right around the first of the year. And um, keep keep looking for Frigate Reserve Rum. Oh, rum. Okay, so this is actual drinking. This is rum. This is absolutely an adult beverage. <laughs> all right. Good. Frigate. Uh, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll get a link out to that as well. Okay, so that's, yeah. that, that's awesome. Frigate Reserve. Okay, Frigate Reserve. Good stuff. And um, if they want to find you, they can just go to uh, Instagram, Flip Palette, uh, or at uh, flip, absolutely. flippalette.com. Absolutely, and I'm a very good pen pal. All right. Good stuff, Flip. Well, yeah, you were easy to get a hold of when I contacted you, uh, you, so I appreciate that. But yeah, just wanted to thank you for coming on. I think I was talking a little bit about maybe going to do some fishing and species stuff, but I mean, your your background and the history was well worth the discussion we had today. So maybe, you know, down the line in you know, a year or two, I can get you back on. We can talk a little more about uh, some of the fishing stuff, but I appreciate you coming on and sharing all your knowledge and, and the history there. My great pleasure. Bye for now. All right. See ya. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash seven zero. And if you get a chance, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, be great to uh, be able to read another review out here. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.